brought to you by Penguin. When you're talking nonsense, it's probably better if you do it in obscure language so nobody can understand what nonsense it is. Hello, and thank you for selecting the award-winning Penguin podcast, the place where we try to uncover how leading authors harness their creativity. Part of this process is looking at a handful of objects that they, most importantly, have chosen that inspire them in some way. My name is Nihal Arthanayaka, speaking to you from home due to, of course, these challenging times. So please do forgive any noises in the background. There may be some glitches in sound quality here from there. We'll do our very best to smooth all of those over. My guest today is a British evolutionary biologist and popular science writer. He's the author of The Selfish Gene, voted the Royal Society's most inspiring science book of all time, and also the bestsellers The Blind Watchmaker, Climbing Mount Improbable, and The God Delusion. His new book is entitled Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide. It is, of course, Richard Dawkins. Hi, Richard. Hello. Why write this book? It's sort of a bit similar to The God Delusion, but The God Delusion is very much for adults and Outgrowing God is meant for a younger audience, not for very young children, but for sort of teenagers, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So it's about outgrowing God. It's about growing up and growing out of the superstition, which is religion. What is your mission? And if you do have a mission, how do you measure success? Well, I suppose my mission is science, really. I mean, I'm passionate about science. I love the idea of scientific truths. I love the idea that the world is understandable and that science is understanding it. And I think it's uh, almost criminal to allow people to go to their grave without understanding why they were ever born. And so most of my books are actually about science, have been about science. But my two books about religion really take off from that because I think that religion is a competing worldview, which is erroneous and which actually um, is anti-scientific. I know many religious people don't think it is anti-scientific, but I do. When you say they're competing, is that in the sense of like a football match or is that in the sense of a war? One is just a more exaggerated version of the other, I suppose. Mm. Um, I mean, one could say if there is a creator at the origin of the universe, who is there and controlling things, who started the universe off, who laid down the laws of physics, perhaps supervises the evolutionary process. If there is such an intelligent being lurking deep in the universe, then it's a very, very different kind of universe from the one I believe in, which is that there is no such being, no such intelligence, that everything comes about through the unadulterated laws of physics, the the uninterfered with laws of physics. How do you keep this debate civil? Because when you wrote The God Delusion, what, 14 years ago, we were in a pre-social media age. We are now in the age of outrage, of cancel culture, where people will get angry so very quickly. How do you keep civility, especially when you're talking about something as sensitive as people's faith? Well, I, I think that's a very important question, and I, I, I always try to be civil. Uh, the God Delusion actually acquired an, uh, an unjustified reputation for being uncivil. It was, it was said to be aggressive, which it's not really. I mean, if you actually read it, it's a, I, think, I like to think it's a humorous book, and I like yes. to think Outgrowing God is a humorous book as well. I think both of them are perfectly civil. Um, I get on perfectly well with vicars and bishops and people like that. And, and, <laughs> yeah. Some of my best friends are bishops. <laughs> um, and so I, I like to think that, that the way I carry on this conversation is civil. I think to the extent that people think it's not, 
The reason for that is that for centuries, religion has kind of got a free pass. It's sort of regarded as sort of impolite to even express minor doubts. And therefore, if you do express doubts, they come across as aggressive when actually they're not aggressive. They're just, just doubts. Was there a time when you were younger and had friends who were bishops, um, when they would try and get you on side, convert you, as it were? No. I mean, I, I think bishops... You were know, a lost cause to them, were Bishops you? know better than to try. I mean, the only people who try are sort of fundamentalist evangelists, and, and they, they have no sense at all. But <laughs> bishops are too sensible to bother to try, I think. Do you... St- Dear clear of religion. I mean, they often say, don't they, that, you know, when you're with friends, don't talk about politics and religion. Do you steer clear of it or do you like to kind of verbally joust, intellectually joust? Oh, God, joust no, I, mean, I, I, I steer clear. I'm, I'm not one of those people who bore everybody's dinner party by bringing it up. <laughs> if I'm asked, and I can't avoid answering the question, of course, but I would never volunteer anything about it in, in a social gathering. What if you overhear people? talking in such a way and persuading or trying to persuade a group of people about the existence of a deity and how important it is and how it will be absolutely brilliant for their lives if they choose God or choose Jesus or choose Krishna. Do you ever feel the urge to interview and say, look, I'm sorry, but this I just can't stand by and listen to this anymore? <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on what sort of gathering it is. I suppose if, if it was Somebody's talking it on Hyde Park Corner. <laughs> where he'd be fair game, but uh, but I, I I wouldn't eavesdrop on somebody else's conversation and butt in. I'm I'm not like a Jehovah's Witness who goes doorstepping. Yes, because I guess um, you've had to bat away many times over the years the accusation that you're just an evangelist in a different form. You're evangelising for a different of course, kind of, of faith, course, which is I mean, atheism. It is ridiculous, of course. I mean. The kind of fundamentalism that, that we're talking about there is, is biblical fundamentalism, where they have a holy book, which they believe every word of is true. And so science isn't like that. We don't have a holy book. We have evidence. And that's a huge difference. Now, you've chosen a handful of objects that have inspired you. Now, these include a very special first edition for you, a very ugly fish, which in some ways, like you like to bring humour uh, into your books, could be argued that uh, God has the sense of humour for creating such a thing, and a photo of Prince Philip. So your first object, which I think some people will be surprised to hear, is a copy of the Bible, the King James edition. Richard Dawkins, why the Bible? Well, you have to have to know your enemy, don't you? (laughs) Um, I very much admire the language of the King James version, not modern translations. I suppose my favourite book is probably the book of Ecclesiastes, which in the King James Version begins, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now that second verse in the New International Version is meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. I mean, that is so banal, that is so trite, meaningless, when the original, well, not the original, of course, but the but the King James Version, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, I, I love the King James Version for its language. And I'm quite surprised, actually, that religious preachers, religious apologists are so keen on modern translations because the modern translations are easy to understand and therefore easy to realize what nonsense it all is. And I think if they had any sense, they'd stick to the King James Version, which has the advantage of poetry and the advantage of obscurity 
Um, because when, when you're talking nonsense, it's probably better if you do it in obscure language so nobody can understand what nonsense it is. So the Ecclesiastes is gorgeous. And I think maybe the Song of Songs, wrongly called the Song of Solomon, of course, it has nothing to do with Solomon. Beautiful. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And this is lovely stuff. This is beautiful prose poetry. I gather it's pretty good in the original Hebrew too, although of course I can't read that. I want to just return to this idea of what you would gauge as success in in those two books. Is it persuading people to denounce their faith? Yes, I suppose ultimately that is what it would be. And I do get a lot of letters from people thanking me for assisting them in exactly that. Um, Many of them actually say, you articulated for me what I kind of already thought, but had failed to put into words. They get a lot of that. I suppose another measure of success is the number of people who read the book. In the, the God Delusion has been translated unofficially into Arabic as a PDF that can be downloaded. So this is unofficial. I get no royalties from it or anything like that. But what I've been told is that it has been downloaded 13 million times in Arabic which I think is an astonishing figure and very, very encouraging indeed. And that encouraged me and my foundation to initiate a scheme for translating several of my books, including The God Delusion and others as well, into Arabic and Farsi and Urdu and Indonesian, the principal languages of the Islamic world. And that's now going ahead. So these are now official translations which are available for download as PDFs. Again, I get no royalties. This is They're free. Do you ever have direct correspondence via the internet with people who are considering leaving a religion? Oh, yes. Uh, if, if I get a letter from somebody who seems to be sincere and really seeking uh, understanding, then I, 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 will, I will answer it. What if they're from a country where that could potentially be a dangerous thing to do? I suppose, well, it would be dangerous for them. You, yes, you well, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, that's their decision. And I respect their courage in doing so if they are endangering themselves. I mean, I, I imagine if it's a country where letters are, are, are censored, where letters are, are, are read by the authorities, that's another matter. But I, I think that's for them to decide rather than me. Mm. But is it for you to have a duty of care to not encourage them to do something that could be harming for them? I think that's their decision again. I I, I do sometimes compliment them on their courage and perhaps even warn them. But but I, I feel they know so much better than I do what the dangers are for them that it's not really for me to, I'd be a bit patronizing really, I think, to try to warn them off. Let's move to your next object, Richard, which is... <laughs> Brilliant. This is the, the story behind this is superb. A framed photo of Prince Philip. Um, are you an ardent royalist? I wouldn't say that. I think what you're referring to is the picture in Outgrowing God, which I is have, a picture yes. of a Pacific Islander carrying a, a framed photo of Prince Philip. He is a member of a cult in the South Sea Islands, which worships Prince Philip as a god. It's a kind of offshoot of the cargo cults, which actually sprang up in the 19th century, but particularly flourished after the Second World War, when 
there were various military bases, American, British, Australian, Japanese bases in the Pacific Islands. And the islanders became aware that cargo, fridges, cars, radios, all sorts of lovely things were being rained down from the air by cargo planes. Great big cargo planes would land and disgorge these treasures, which the islanders understandably coveted. And they noticed that the military occupiers didn't seem to actually do anything to earn these wonderful things. They just arrived. And so they assumed that they were sent by the gods or sent by the ancestors. So when the occupying forces left at the end of the war, uh, the cargo stopped coming, of course. And then they tried to persuade the ancestors or the gods to restart the fl flow of cargo planes by doing things like building dummy airports with wooden control towers and wooden planes sitting on the, on the runway and things like that. So that was the cargo cults. Then there was the cult of John Frum, who was a figure worshipped as somebody who was going to return, rather like Jesus. And nobody quite knows the origin of the name John Frum. One theory is that he was a an, an American soldier who introduced himself as John from America. So from being the American pronunciation of from. So he, he, they thought his name was John from. And so there are numerous cults of John from in Pacific islands and they have statues of him. There's a kind of second coming cult. David Attenborough has a lovely story of how he was talking to a man there who was a worshiper of John from. And he said, well, it's 20 years now that you've been worshipping John Frum and he's not come. So the man who was called Sam said, yes, but you, your man, Jesus, has been supposed to be coming back up for 2,000 years and he hasn't come. So I'm prepared to wait a bit longer for John Frum. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the Prince Philip cult is an offshoot of this. Prince Philip visited these islands on a tour when he went on a tour without the Queen uh, as a young man. He must have been a very striking figure, handsome young man, probably dressed in naval uniform. He was worshipped and still is worshipped as a god uh, on at least one of these of these islands. And again, there's a, a second coming legend about him. What connects the needs of those islanders and people in Saudi Arabia or people in India, people in America that have a faith? Because it's easy to look at it in the book and just say, oh, isn't that quaint? But yes, there is quaint. something universal of course. in that. That's why I put them in the book. Uh, I mean... We don't really know how Christianity got started. It's all rather obscure. We have the Bible, we have the epistles. But the cult of Prince Philip, the cult of the cargo cults, or John Frum, happened within living memory. So we know how that got started. Mormonism is another case, a little bit older, early 19th century, but not living memory, but still recent enough for the history to be fairly clear. So we can see again how that started. What we can see from these cargo cults and the Prince Philip cult is how easy it is for a religious cult to get to get going. It's as though the human psychology is eager to build up something trivial like that into a cult which people believe in, worship, and the even similarities like the the second coming in both the Prince Philip cult and the John Frum cult. We're apt to laugh at it, but of course we shouldn't laugh at it any more than we laugh at Christianity. It's just the same thing. Just it's just two thousand years on. Because one of the things about the culture war, for instance, is that people will find their own science, their own facts to back up whatever tribe they belong to. 
That is very true. And, and, and there's good psychological evidence that what people, even political opinions, tend to be nothing to do with evidence, nothing to do with looking at issues, nothing to do with policy, but is this good for my tribe? And I'm afraid that's becoming increasingly, really embarrassingly evident in American politics at the moment, where there is a, a, a Trump tribe um, who, who simply believe everything he says. It's a culture war that's going on there. And that's a political example, but the same is true of religion. Something that is often overlooked, and you've already mentioned it, uh, is about the humour in your writing. And there's a brilliant point in your book where you ask, using that wit of yours, whether God is a good role model. Uh, let's have a listen to that now. Whether or not we think God is an entirely fictional character, we can still judge whether he is good or bad, just as we might judge Lord Voldemort or Darth Vader or Long John Silver or Professor Moriarty or Goldfinger, or Cruella de Vil. So throughout this chapter, when I say God did so-and-so, I mean the Bible says that God did so-and-so, and from these accounts we can judge if the God character is a nice character, whether the stories about him are fact or fiction. I shall do so, and you will no doubt feel free to decide for yourself whether you think it's still possible to love God in spite of everything, as a man called Job did in the following story from the Bible. Job was a very good, righteous man who loved God. This pleased God so much that he had a sort of bet with Satan about Job. Satan thought Job was good and well-behaved and loved God only because he was fortunate, rich and healthy, with a nice wife and ten lovely children. God bet Satan that Job would go on being good and go on loving and worshipping him, even if he lost all his good fortune. God gave Satan permission to test Job by depriving him of everything and Satan duly set about it. Poor Job. His cattle and sheep all died, his servants were all killed, his camels were stolen, his house blew down in a gale, and all his ten children died. But God won the argument because, even in the face of such provocation, Job never became cross with God and refused to stop loving and worshipping him. Satan still wouldn't admit defeat, though, so God gave him permission to test Job even further. This time, Satan covered Job's whole body with boils, like the boils God inflicted on the Egyptians, caused by bacteria, as we now know, although the author of the book of Job didn't. And presumably God and Satan did. Still, Job's faith held firm. He didn't stop loving God. So God finally rewarded Job by curing the boils and giving him lots more wealth. His wife had lots more children, and they all lived happily ever after. Pity about the ten dead children and all the other people who'd been killed because of the bet, but, as people often say, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. That was Outgrowing God, written and read by my guest Richard Dawkins. It's available to buy and download now. There's a link in the programme notes of this very episode. And whilst we're here, just remember to subscribe. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Comment, if you wish, and spread the word about this podcast. Should you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can find us there too. Here's a question you're asked so often, and uh, an easy one for you to answer is, how do people learn morality if not from religion? I can Probably you can't count the amount of religious people who've asked you that very question. Well, yes, the, the, I do get it a lot, <laughs> putting it mildly. <laughs> um, I would be very upset if I thought that people did actually get their morality from religion, because if you think about it, there are really just two ways in which that could happen. They could get it from some holy book like the Bible or the Quran. And really, I have to honestly hope they don't. I mean, if you really did get your morality from the Bible, 
it would be an appalling kind of morality. Well, just read the Ten Commandments. And one Ten Commandment everybody knows, which is thou shalt not kill, and that's great. But there are plenty of others which are just nonsense, like thou shalt not make it a graven image and things like that. The Bible sanctions draconian punishments, like death for breaking the Sabbath, that kind of thing. People will say, well, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament is much nicer. It isn't. The New Testament is actually a rather horrid book. Jesus is a nice character, no doubt about that. But St. Paul, who invented the religion of Christianity, preaches a really horrible doctrine, which is that Adam sinned. Adam's sin is inherited, is passed down to all of humanity. So every newborn baby, before it knows anything, is, is steeped in sin. And the only way it can be saved from hell is to be baptized. St. Paul actually says in one of his epistles, without the shedding of blood, there can be no redemption. That is a disgusting idea. The idea that somebody has to die, somebody has to be punished, somebody has to suffer on the cross in order that we should be purged, should be forgiven of the sins, not only of ourselves, but of Adam who never existed, and of all the sins of humanity yet to come. If you think about it, that is a deeply, deeply immoral doctrine. So do not get your morality from the Bible, certainly not from the Old Testament, not even from the New Testament. The other way people might think you get your morality from religion is fear of being found out, fear of God. And so we are good because we're frightened of God. We avoid doing bad things because we're frightened of being punished, sent to hell. That's a horrible idea. Again, unfortunately, it may be true. I mean, it may be that people who would not, for example, shoplift in a shop where there is a a real camera, a real spy camera watching you, even if there isn't a spy camera, if you're religious and you think there's one in the sky, you think God is watching you, that might deter you from doing something bad. So unfortunately, I have to admit it is possible that some people are good because they're frightened of God. But I have to add that that's a very unpleasant, a very nasty reason for being good. It's sometimes expressed as, well, if I didn't believe in God, I'd go out and kill my neighbor. I think the proper response to that has often been said is, well, keep away from me. You're not the kind of person I want to know. If the only reason you don't kill and rape is you're frightened of God, you are not the sort of person anybody would wish to know. Let's move on to your next object, Richard, which is a fish. Tell us about the flounder fish and why this had to be one of your objects today. It's a flat fish and it's remarkable in all sorts of ways. It has a very distorted face, a kind of Picasso-like face with both eyes on one side. The reason for this is that it's a flatfish which lies on one side. Unlike a skate, which is also a flatfish, which is related to sharks, and which lies on its belly and is kind of flattened from above, so it's symmetrical. Flounders and plaice and sole and um, fish like that, turbots, um, lie on their side. And so one eye is then looking down into the bottom of the sea and can't see anything. And so evolution has moved the eye round so that both eyes are on the other side, on one side of the fish, either the left or right, depending upon which side the fish rests on. It's different in different species. So the head of a flounder or a place or a sole is a highly distorted head. The whole skull is distorted by this need to move the eye round to the same side as the other eye. Uh, So it is a remarkable feat of evolution. It's something that couldn't possibly be done by a sensible designer. It's obviously 
has the hand of history uh, written into it. And your last object, and a very special thing indeed, but a first edition of The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. Was this something that you, you, you hunted high and low for? It was given me, and I'm immensely grateful to Charles, Charles Simone, who was the philanthropist, the benefactor, who endowed uh, for me a professorship in public understanding of science, and he endowed it in perpetuity. So um, when I retired, it, I, I now have a successor in this professorship. Charles presented me with this first edition. So I don't know what he paid for it. I hate to think what he paid for it. Um, but it's very beautiful, and it's my possibly my most treasured possession. Looking back to October last year, first edition of Charles Darwin's evolutionary work on the origin of species sold at auction for £162,500, Richard. Oh, dear. Okay. I, <laughs> yes. dear. All right. Well, so, okay. I feel like we're on Antiques Roadshow here, and I've just, uh, yes. yeah, um, I've just revealed well, it is, that. It, it is a remarkable book. I mean, one thing that's remarkable about it, if I could just add this, is that it went through six editions. And you, you would expect that each edition would be an improvement on the last. But actually, apart from minor misprints and things, the first edition is more up to date than the sixth edition, even though the sixth edition is years later. As the successive editions came out, Darwin put in revisions, which he didn't need to put in, replying to misguided criticisms of the first edition. And actually, he'd have been better to leave the first edition the way it was. And so always read the first edition. It's best in all respects. Talking of books, a work of fiction, Fred Hoyle's Black Cloud. Why is this work of fiction, written by a scientist, important to you? It's, I think, possibly my favourite book of science fiction. It's marred by the fact that the hero is an obnoxious character. Apart from that, it's a wonderful work of science fiction because you learn a lot of science from it. I mean, right from the start... The discovery of the black cloud, and needn't go into what it is, but it's, it's discovered in two entirely different ways. It's discovered by a mathematical theorist working on displacement of planets, which is exactly how the planet Neptune was discovered, by the way, by, by the fact that other planets were not in the right place. So it was worked out there must be another planet to exert a gravitational effect. Well, the black cloud was discovered in that way by a mathematical, by a theoretical mathematician in Cambridge, independently discovered astronomically by a graduate student working in an observatory in California. The two discoveries happen at the same time. And it's very dramatic when they join forces and realize that each other has made the same discovery. So that's one thing. That's often how science works. Then there's a lot of information theory. It's a very important piece of theory, which is much used in biology and in physics I really got to grips with understanding information theory through this work of fiction. And then at the end of the book, we're introduced to the idea of the deep problems, problems which are beyond the comprehension of the human mind. The black cloud is a, is a superhuman intelligence which attempts to instruct the heroes who are brilliant physicists in the superphysics which it knows and blows their brains. I mean, two, two of them die from overheated brain because they can't take the overload of information. In a way, it's remarkable that the human brain can cope with relativity and quantum theory and lots of other things, because after all, natural selection equipped our brain 
to survive on the African savanna, hunting and gathering and finding waterholes and finding caves to live in and seducing the opposite sex and things like that. You wouldn't think that such a brain would be able to do what Einstein did or what Planck did or what Heisenberg did. It, it may be that the human brain will never actually be stymied by problems. It may be that we shall end up by understanding all of physics and science will come to an end, physics will come to an end. Nobody knows whether that's true. I think physicists are divided into those who think it will. There'll be a kind of scientist nirvana when we can just sort of pack it in and say, well, that's that, we solved it. Or whether, as so far has happened, every problem solved uncovers a new problem. Is there a tension between politicians and scientists in Black Cloud that is as relevant today as it was. Well, there is a tension, and I think that's one of the other things that mars the book. Um, it's it's over. It goes over the top. Um, um, the obnoxious hero Christopher Kingsley has a kind of war with with politicians and is downright rude, indeed fatally rude to them. The human side of the book is not really to my taste, but the science is brilliant. What films are to your taste? If I was to ask you. What is a film that has had a similar impact on you than Black Cloud had? Oh, a similar impact. Well, then I suppose science fiction, like maybe 2001. But that's not the same as which films do I like watching. I mean, I watch old DVDs and and downloads from from the internet. And I love old British comedies. I love The Lady Killers and and Two-Way Stretch and things like Peter Sellers and Alec Guinness and people like that. Superb, superb. We all need a, a valve. We, laughter is such an important thing. I, I try to put laughter into my books, and you were kind enough to, no, to notice that, that, that both The God Delusion and Outgrowing God actually, I think, are quite humorous books. Yes, absolutely. It's often a good way to face off the po-faced people with humour, isn't it? Indeed, I mean, that's yes. where satire comes from. Yes. It? Richard Dawkins, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you very much. Stephen Hawking, a memoir of friendship and physics. In this touching memoir, writer and physicist Leonard Melodno creates an intimate and moving portrait of Stephen Hawking and tells the story of their long friendship. What began as a collaboration became so much more. And for the first time, we get to listen to their incredible journey. I'm not a gawker. But when I first arrived in Cambridge in 2006, I gawked. It was the summer of Stephen's 64th year, and although many of the details of his life did not match those that would be portrayed in the Hollywood film about him, the details of Cambridge did seem a close match to what I'd seen in another film, a Harry Potter movie. Cambridge was Hogwarts. The outer neighborhoods of the city probably have less charm in history but I rarely ventured far from the old Cambridge that Newton knew. Stephen Hawking, a memoir of friendship and physics, is available to download now. And don't forget, we've sent some information to your Alexa app about this episode and also how to sign up for the Penguin email newsletter if you haven't already. Thank you very much for listening.